What does it take to make a decent deal these days? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Sometimes it feels like we're living in an age of brinksmanship, where everyone's battling for a competitive advantage. As the Broadway producer David Merrick is reputed to have said, it's not enough for me to win. My enemies must lose. But can we really live that way? Can a business survive? The obvious answer is no. We need to find ways to accommodate one another, to negotiate to the satisfaction of all parties. So learning the art of negotiation is key. And to help us do that, I'm joined today by Jeanette Nyden, author and internationally recognized expert in the crafting of commercial contracts. She's written several books on the subject and taught at Seattle University and the University of Tennessee. Today she'll share some tips on how to get to that fabled win-win result, even as we grapple with issues of compliance, data privacy, and stubbornly adversarial partners. She'll also reveal some common misperceptions and mistakes that negotiating parties tend to fall into. So here is my conversation with Jeanette Nyden. Jeanette Nyden, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Jeanette, you know that negotiation and contracting are as old as society itself. Are the rules and tips for success, though, any different today? To some extent, they are because we're in a time of change in two significant ways. We've got a globalized economy, so we're dealing with very large enterprise structures and cultures, and at the same time, rapid technology. And the way that rapid technology is impacting the negotiations is automating the easy arm's length transactions and leaving the difficult negotiations, which leads back to culture and cross-border negotiations. Is there a danger that we might be putting too much emphasis on automation and putting it too much in, in that in the lap of automation and not reserving enough of it for the human element, which is still so necessary? No, I don't think so, actually. I think that we're doing the right thing and using forecasts, blockchain technology, RFID tracking to get the day-to-day tasks of buying and selling at that lower transactional level automated to forecasting, particularly in manufacturing. So I think that that's working very well. Software is another area where I think it's working very well. Where I think the issue is, We do not have the skill set for what my client calls the ugly and the difficult. And that's where we need to focus our attention to be successful today. 
I hear a lot of talk about how to engage in, let's be specifically, uh, supplier-buyer relationships, contracting a, a new supplier or a vendor. And you, the question becomes like, how much to anticipate? Do you want this contract to be 300 pages long? Uh, there's got to be some sweet spot be, between which you anticipate as much as you can and yet not load up the contract with so much that it just becomes un- impossible to, to deal with. Is that an issue or a challenge that you face in your world? It's a very big challenge because of compliance. And my very large Fortune 500 companies are struggling with compliance and international rules, rules that may come out of the EU that now necessarily have to be applied to Latin America and the United States and Asia. And what we used to fight about price almost seems easy compared to fighting about compliance issues to the preservation of data or the protection of privacy and data. And so you're right, you know, do you need a 300-page contract? Well, if you've got a lot of consumer data that is protected under certain rules coming out of the EU, then yes. If you're buying parts from a United States manufacturer, maybe not. You know, I know you're big in counseling the importance of the win-win negotiation. Always sounds good to everybody. Everybody wants to win, right? So uh, it sounds like a no-brainer, and yet it does at the same time feel like the world we're living in now is one in which people are vying for competitive advantage. It's sort of a more of a, a world of killer instincts. Am I right in that? And if so, how do we battle against that toward the idea of a win-win negotiating environment against that backdrop? Well, we've been talking about wanting win-win since the 70s when the Harvard Project on Negotiation started to publish on this, and it's just as true today. We want both. There are times when we're incredibly competitive, shark eat shark. We're looking to lower our prices in the marketplace to get market share away from our competitors, whether we're buying and we're using our suppliers to do that or we're on the supply side selling into customers that way. And at the same time, for example, in real estate, outsourcing for international facilities management, the integrated services, is set to grow by billions, tens of billions. And those agreements are win-win agreements. Those agreements are competitive. They are not shark-eat-shark. They are solving incredibly complex issues in all corners of the world for global clients. And so we're seeing both. And as a negotiator, you have to have an incredibly wide range of skills to know when is it competitive shark eat shark and when is it going to be collaborative negotiating a highly responsive global agreement for a major powerhouse. It seems logically that you could divide all negotiating situations into one of two camps. That is the potential negotiation with an adversary and that with a potential partner. Or is it not so easy sometimes to tell the difference between those two? Is the line between those two not quite as sharp as it would appear? Oh, no, it's not sharp at all. And your partner may be the supplier and your adversary may be another department within your company for fear of limited resources and how your resources are being used with a particular supplier. And it could shift from month to month, moment to moment. You could get a new initiative and the supplier could become adversarial to you in how that initiative impacts them and your internal colleagues could become your partners. And what I'm finding is that 
it isn't static, it's dynamic. And people are coming to me for training and coaching and mentoring, not just on price negotiations, but on compliance-related issues, these complex legal issues that cross borders and that require internal stakeholder and co-worker cooperation. In your years of doing this and the books you've written and the, and the companies and people you've worked with, what are some of the common misperceptions that you have encountered about negotiations? I heard one from a Fortune 500 company two days ago, and that's that negotiation is about price, it's about the muscular style, it's transactional, and it's not a communication. And yet her team is growing by leaps and bounds for negotiators and contracts who understand compliance, regulation, global issues around intellectual property, cloud computing, and none of it has anything to do with shark eat shark price negotiations. It's all about convincing people to work with compliance, work within regulations, and to get suppliers to come up to speed on the buying customer schedule in terms of compliance. And those are communications. Those are conversations. And she said, be aware, part of my team will not agree with you that compliance negotiations in the technical aspects of the contract are still negotiations. Well, there you have the question of whether both sides are committed to that philosophy. If they are, it sounds like you've got a smooth path to a successful negotiation. But if one side wants the win-win or wants to reach out and considers it a conversation and the other side doesn't, don't you then have a problem? You do. And the way that I like to define negotiation comes from the book, Getting Past No, by the same authors of Getting to Yes, Uri and Fisher. And the definition is that a negotiation is a back-and-forth communication aimed at reaching an agreement when some of your interests are shared and some of your interests are opposed. And when you go into someone who thinks that this is one type of communication and that it's adversarial and it's mind, 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 you can still use collaborative communication skills to try to move the conversation. You cannot change the way that they're going to choose to communicate with you, but how you change your communication style often can at least move the conversation past impasse and to a solution. The analogy that I tend to use when I think about being in that type of situation is if two people are negotiating. Let's say you and I are, are negotiating over a cake. And you say, I would like half the cake. And I would say, no, I want all the cake. And then I propose, well, you know what? Let's compromise. I'll take three quarters. That seems to me to be a difficult situation because the other side started at such an extreme point that they can say that they backed off of their position and yet still be unreasonable. So how do you deal with that? Yes, it's often does that one quarter of the cake that you're willing to share or some close amount, how does that meet the other person's needs? Do you, you really need half the cake? Do I need half the cake? Do you need half the cake to be fair? There's a lot of research on equity and equitable adjustments when negotiating around investments in these relationships. And we think that 50-50 splitting it down the middle is going to actually be the fairest solution because it's the easiest solution or it's the harmonious solution when actually a three quarters, one quarter split might actually be fair, might be fair in terms of the investment, might be fair in terms of ownership, all kinds of things. And when I talk to my clients who are literally in very similar situations, whether it's price 
or the services or compliance, and it, they're saying, okay, well, I'll compromise to three quarters of the cake. We try to devise a solution where we are communicating that that one quarter of the cake meets the other party's needs in a legitimate way. Now, if they need half for harmony and they need half to save face, that's a more complicated conversation. But if they don't legitimately need half for financial purposes or compliance issues or whatever the case may be, then sometimes we can be successful splitting something three quarters, one quarter. It's about perception. That being the case is that, I mean, that's still got to be some kind of a rule that the two sides come to the table not being completely out front about what they're willing to give up, right? I mean, you, you've got to have some room for negotiation. So that still must be part of the mix of negotiating. That's the back and forth communication where your interests are shared and your interests are opposed. And you work towards meeting as many of the shared interests as you can by making as many trade-offs that benefit you and benefit your counterpart as you possibly can. You try to mitigate where your interests are opposed with the trade-offs that you're willing to receive and make to your counterpart, and you get to a solution that best meets your needs. And to some extent, at the end of the day, you have to shake it off. You can't worry about what you left. If you went in looking for A, B, C, and D, and you walk out with A, B, C, and D, then you've been successful. Perhaps you could have gotten E, and that's for another day. But to beat yourself up about not getting E this time is useless. It's not going to do anything. You just have to prepare to get E and know that you need E next time. And we talked a little bit about common misperceptions in negotiations. I'm wondering, this is a slightly different question, what are some common mistakes that are often made in a negotiating environment that you would counsel your clients to avoid from the outset? Not planning and not having a strategy. It is very evident to me that people are burdened on the sales side and on the procurement side, and they're showing up for meetings without truly being prepared. They're forwarding emails to colleagues and coworkers to get their opinions on issues varying from insurance to pricing without a preamble so their coworkers don't understand what part of the negotiation they're in, what role they need to play. Negotiations are protracted and prolonged because there isn't a strategy around how to reach an agreement on rebates or price reductions over the course of the negotiation. And as a result, stakeholders come in at the 11th hour, not happy with what has been gotten at the negotiations. They weren't included or they were included, but did not participate actively until the last minute and are disappointed with the results. And we really need to develop a discipline that to go fast, you have to prepare and go slow at the very beginning. You do have to plan. You do have to have a strategy. Stakeholders do need to be involved and informed, and then you can go fast. You go slow at the end and slower and slower and slower. The less prepared you are and the less strategic you are. How often do you think it's the case that the negotiating team itself hasn't even determined among themselves on their side of the table what it is exactly they want to get out of this negotiation? I think it happens a lot. I really do. I think it happens a lot. And then also, I think that the negotiation team doesn't know how to report out internally to its stakeholders. So in a negotiation that I was involved in where I was co-negotiating with one of my clients and I was in a mentor position, she really didn't have a lot of understanding of how to 
break the issues down into the various stakeholders' needs and wants to show that she was continuing to advocate for what they needed and wanted out of the agreement. And it caused some initial frustration where there was a perception that she wasn't advocating for the organization when I knew she had. And this is where we sometimes as negotiators never stop negotiating. I think and the advice that I had given to her is we always have to be negotiating. We negotiate up front with stakeholders, we negotiate with our counterparts, and we negotiate with our stakeholders when they want to know where we are. It isn't just a progress report. How many clauses do we have left to decide? It's actually an advocacy that we're working for you. How do you negotiate when there is a significant power imbalance between the two sides? Yeah, so my book, Negotiation Rules, talks about this quite a bit. It was written for smaller businesses that were negotiating with larger businesses, and and I'm a very big proponent of the Harvard Project on Negotiation, the principled negotiations, and being able to use interest to get what you want and to meet the other party's needs. And I think it it also goes back to that conversation I had about equity. One quarter, three quarters might actually be an equitable division of resources. Someone may not actually be entitled to one half and doesn't feel very good or sometimes maybe not so American because we think splitting something down the middle is the fairest harmonious way to go, but it actually may not be fair at the end of the day. And we need to be open to that idea of what's an equitable distribution of the resources with what we've got in front of us. Now, you've worked a lot with CEOs in your consulting on this topic. You could say that almost by definition, CEOs have a certain ego. That's kind of what makes them CEOs sometimes. And perhaps they have the need to look dominant for whatever reason in the eyes of their shareholders and their colleagues and their customers. And maybe they are dedicated to this idea of winning themselves at maybe at the expense of the other. Do you find that sometimes to be an issue with these large personalities that you have to counsel not to be quite that way? There are also large personalities and negotiators, deal makers, and they also have large egos and they like to win and they don't like to lose face. It's an interesting pairing because if you've got a big flamboyant deal negotiator paired with a big flamboyant CEO, sometimes that can be a little reckless. It takes some balance. So if you've got a flamboyant CEO that doesn't want to lose face, then you as the negotiator really have to be able to create a situation where the needs are met and everyone's face is saved. You can't also bring that same ego. Yet if you've got a CEO who maybe is more modest, is maybe more of an engineer and worried a little bit more about numbers and isn't quite as flamboyant, then it may help to have a more flamboyant ego-based negotiator to be able to posture and to advocate on behalf of the organization. So it's a dance, really, between the deal-making team and all the other stakeholders and their personalities. This question is a little bit sensitive and maybe even dangerous, but I really want to ask it and get your opinion of it. Do men and women negotiate differently? And if so, should they? It's not a dangerous question at all. And very simple answer is, Yes, they negotiate differently. Yes, we should negotiate differently. There's a lot of research on the biological responses and why we would work differently, the socialization process on why we would work differently. And it's about harmony and truly harmony. My daughter sings in a choir and and it's different voices at different pitches and levels in different parts. 
what women bring to the table around collaboration, looking out for others' needs. They do very well when advocating for someone other than themselves, teams, their companies. They are phenomenal. And men are phenomenal when they're advocating for a point, and it might be a point for themselves as they see themselves, which may include their team and their colleagues, and advocating and being able to really take a tougher stance and not worry so much about someone else's feelings in order to reach a result that works well for their company. And those are notes, if you will, in a harmony, and they should be played at appropriate times together. What I dislike is any sense that there's one right way. No longer is there one right way. There's different skills and tools at different times for different relationships and different circumstances. So I would like to see women step up in certain circumstances and men step up in others and be able to recognize each other's strengths and when to pass the baton to the other. Well, you are, of course, the author of multiple books, one of which is Getting to We, Negotiating Agreements for Highly Collaborative Relationships. We will link to that in the show notes to our episode. But uh, Jeanette Nyden, I hope to have you back on the show to go into further depth on this very, very important topic. But in the meantime, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. You're very welcome, and I'd be delighted to come back. That was my conversation with Jeanette Nyden, talking about the secrets of successful negotiating. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast. We're streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.